Hello and welcome to the Australia Indonesia's Pair Summit where we have a look at the research done by our teams based in Australia and Indonesia and also talk to some of those with an interest in the subject area being discussed. It's great to have you with us for day three of our Pair Summit. I'm Helen Brown, the Lead of Communications and Outreach at the Australia Indonesia Centre and your moderator for the day. The centre acknowledges the traditional owners, the Kulin Nations, of the land in Melbourne on which the AIC's head office is located. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Now, for your viewing, I'm going to suggest that you select the gallery view for watching this webinar. That will help you see the slides and the speakers. Also, uh, if you're going to use our wonderful sign language interpreters, it will allow you to see them better as well. So if you have a moment now, switch to gallery view and we can give you a better viewing experience. And I'd like to acknowledge our wonderful sign language interpreters today, uh, Patwidodo and Busonya, and also our partners Linguna for their translation services so that you can listen to this in either the Indonesian or English languages. Before I have a chat with our panel for the day, I would like to ask our guest speaker, Pa Alanga Hatato, the Coordinating Minister for Economic Affairs for the Republic of Indonesia, to make some opening remarks. Honorable Ambassador Penny Williams, uh, Honorable Dr. Eugene Sebastian, Executive Director of Australian Indonesia Centre, Honorable representative of government, universities, industry, and other stakeholders from both Indonesia and Australia. Participants of 2021 Annual Summit of the Partnership for Australia-Indonesia Research, good morning. I wish you are staying safe and healthy. It is both pleasure and honor for me to deliver opening remarks on day three of this annual summit. I would like to extend my gratitude to the Australian Indonesia Centre for convening this important virtual meeting. I hope that this meeting would be a fruitful of thought and how we can work together to restore our economic during this pandemic. In such an important occasion, I like this annual summit, I'm pleased to share with you the Indonesian economic outlook and the work of the government in supporting the community during COVID-19 pandemic on various sectors, among others, health, employment, micro and small medium enterprises, social protection and food security. As we are all know that COVID-19 pandemic has greatly affected most economics, including Indonesia. Uh, in the beginning of 2020, uh, the impact on the household, micro, small and medium enterprise corporation, as well as other economic stakeholders. We are blessed that the pandemic was under control at the moment. It has been flattened for the last 140 days and various policy on economic recovery was on the track. So that economic Indonesia has grown positively hopefully in the fourth quarter on year-on-year -year basis can be achieved between around 3.7 to 4%. We hope that business will uh, follow 
to recover several sectors such as manufacturers mining plantation has been recovered earlier and agriculture and real estate also have shown their resilience during the pandemic COVID-19. If we could maintain the momentum, we expect that uh, the economic will grow in 2020 around 5.2%. The COVID-19 has created a challenge to tackle a rising unemployment. In August 2020, the pandemic affected around 29.12 million people, or 14.28 of working age population being categorized as unemployment temporarily. And uh, most of these uh, employees are working with reduced working hours. One of the program that the government launched during the pandemic COVID was the pre-job card, the program to improve the competence of the workforce through vocational online training. And another purpose of this program is to maintain the purchasing power of the affected people or workers through a social assistance. Recipient of pre-job card program are generally young people ages 18 to 35 years with a level of education around high school or below. The pre-job cards cover all group of people, including women, that is having more than one independent or under uh, one dependent family or household in the regional area. As of November 2021, there has been 78 million online registered for the pre-job card since uh, the launching of pre-job card in 2020. And the numbers of recipients uh, was around 11.4 million and the total uh, distributed incentive was around 25.1 trillion rupiah. In terms of economic recovery, the survey that uh, conducted to evaluate the pre-job card, it shows that uh, being registered and joining the program, the number of unemployment beneficiary decreased from 56% to 39.8%. And uh, the recipients of incentive upon the completion of training also increasing their purchasing power of the workers and creating employment and entrepreneurship through the micro and small medium enterprises. Micro, small and medium enterprises also hard hit by the pandemic. The government also launching various policy to support and to empower them to survive during the COVID-19. The government undertakes serious social protection program that includes Smart Indonesian College Card, Smart Indonesia Program on National Health Insurance for contribution assistance, 
and also for recipients of Family Hope Program, the cash social assistance, as well as basic uh, staple food cards. In addition, the COVID-19 pandemics, the government has also seen uh, the food security as one of the important uh, issues. And uh, during the pandemic, in the, since last year, Indonesia is self-sufficient on the rice productions. So it shows that the agriculture sector shown its resiliency in developing the economic on the rural side. The Indonesian government has established the national food system to increase fruit productions and to meet the national needs. And the government aim on five policy. One is sustainable domestic production and availability to fulfill the demand for quality and safe food. Second is conducive environment for local food development. The third is uh, food access price stabilization. Number four is strengthening uh, farmer co corporation and efficiency of uh, logistic of food distribution and food assistance for household to maintain the food security. The application of technology in production, distribution, and consumption are mandatory to increase the efficiency and effectiveness of each process along the food value chain. Indonesia also make priority on the reform in agriculture sectors among others uh, in uh, stabilization of price, integrated livestock, and intensifies and mechanization of agriculture work, as well as to maintain, to control the land conversion for the uh, agriculture purposes. I really hope that the summit could provide uh, recommendations as well as uh, the solution for the government policies. And I believe uh, with the support of the Australian government that the potential deliverables and concrete actions can be uh, rolled out. And I'm looking forward to the result of the studies, especially the joint effort to reset, restore, and reboot the economic and uh, at the end, uh, it will contribute to uh, solve the health uh, problems. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's Pa Alanga Hatato, the Coordinating Minister for Economic Affairs for Indonesia, making those opening remarks very salient about the economic recovery of Indonesia and many other nations after the coronavirus, coronavirus sorry, pandemic, which is uh, on our minds for today, today's discussions. So in our first panel, we're going to look at the road to recovery in terms of assessing the pandemic's impact on the tourism industry. 
Now, you know that the severe travel restrictions that were imposed by most countries to limit the spread of COVID-19 had an almost immediate and just a severe effect on the tourism industry. For Indonesia, that meant millions of people who relied on casual or informal roles in this sector for their livelihoods found themselves without work. And then there are the multitude of businesses that feed into the industry, also finding themselves caught by a sudden loss of revenue. Today, we're going to have a look at some of those impacts on Indonesia and also discuss what needs to be considered as the tourism economy starts to reopen. We're going to have a great chat with our panelists about that. Now you can put some questions to them, just put it into the Q&A box on your virtual screen. And also uh, I gave you a little tip earlier about gallery view so that you could keep across who's actually speaking. If you would like to just see the current participants for this session, you can untick show non-video participants in your view options. So you've just got to untick that show non-video participants and then you'll get a leaner screen to look at. All right, with all that said, uh, it is my pleasure to introduce to you our panellists for today. Uh, firstly, our two researchers, Dr. Yagen Sun, Senior Lecturer at the University of Queensland, and Dr. Ilmia Wan Awolin, Lecturer at Universitas Erlanga. Those are the two co-leads of the research into how COVID-19 has impacted the tourism industry in Indonesia. Joining us as well, Wonderful to have the Vice President of Public Policy, Government Relations and CSR with Traveloka, Bu Widyasari Listoyawulan. Now, she is across what is happening in the tourism scene. Traveloka is one of the biggest e-commerce tourism industry platforms in the country today. And has, of course, recently, well, last year, moved to Australia. So she's got some great insights to share as well. And finally, we are also very fortunate to have Dr. Futu Fature, a policy analyst with the Ministry of Finance in Indonesia, who has been keeping a very close eye on GDP and the impact of the loss of tourism on Indonesia's economy. So he's going to provide some great insights into that area. All right, so thank you to our panelists. Thank you very much for joining us today from all your different locations. I'm going to start off by helping the audience by giving them a bit of a landscape view of what happened over the past couple of years when it came to the tourism industry. So we'll get to the, the what's happening now and what we can do in the future. But for the moment, let's have a look at what happened. And I think Traveloka can give us uh, firstly a very good commercial perspective on this. So I would ask Buwidya from Traveloka, would you start by giving us an overview what you were seeing over the past two years? Thank you. Thank you so much, Helen. Uh, Baba Ibu. Good morning, everybody. Hope you are all safe and well. Uh, thank you for having us today. Uh, responding to your uh, questions, Helen, it is indeed one of the uh, industry that has been impacted so badly is uh, traveling and tourism. And just like Pak Mantri said that lots of uh, people lost uh, the job and one of them is uh, pretty much on tourism sector. Uh, recently, ADB just released that uh, 80, 82 percent drop in inbound tourist expenditure this year in ASEAN country itself. 
and that impacted to 1.6 million job loss in Asian countries alone last year. But for us, uh, Traveloka, as we are talking right now, as we see in the number on the screen that per November, actually 60 million Indonesian have received their first dose. And as we're speaking today, I think more than 50% of total population uh, has been vaccinated and the number of cases has been low uh, in the quarter, uh, predicted in quarter uh, four this year. And as of course uh, with us, it's quite um, unfortunate situation when the pandemic hits. Nevertheless, next slide please. We see that there is a positive, uh, what you may call it, uh, movement uh, this far, starting from June until this year, Helen, where actually a staycation has been increasing and because of the confidence uh, is growing because of the vaccination, then people start traveling. Next slide, please. Now what we are, of course, we can talk later on, Helen, but we've been working a lot with the government of Indonesia, private sector community in encouraging uh, different lifestyle healthier lifestyle. We work with partners across Indonesia to provide certification uh, approved by the government, what we call it CHSE, which ensure that all the employees at the hotels or restaurants are vaccinated. And this will boost the confidence of, of customers uh, when they travel. This is one of the, the effort that we've, we've been doing so far. I will stop right here, Helen, over to you. Thank you, Widja, that's fantastic. We will definitely get back to you with some of those points that you've raised. Um, I'd now like to invite our researchers, Ba'awalin and Ms. Yayen, to present, give a short presentation on their findings on the tourism uh, industry. Now, I must note that they did this work uh, the year before the Delta variant hit, basically. So please keep that in mind. Obviously, no one was expecting the strength of that variant, and it, do, it did change a lot of things. So we'll take this research, we'll have a look at it now, but we will be able to apply it, it to the current situation as well. Thank you, Yang and Aulin. Thank you, everyone. Uh, it's great to have this opportunity to share with you our research outputs. Uh, I would like to first introduce our research team. Uh, besides uh, Dr. Avalin, uh, we also have another two colleagues at the University of Queensland join this project, Dr. Lin Jie Shi and Dr. Jie Wong. And we also collaborating with the Ministry of Finance and Ministry of Tourism, as well as Statistics Indonesia for this project. Uh, we would like to especially thank uh, Dr. Putu Bhatturi from the Ministry of Finance because they provide such a critical parameters for us to undertake this project. So basically this uh, project wants to understand and estimate the amount of tourism workers that are affected in this pandemic. And we want to do so by providing high resolution information. Typically, when we see uh, such impact assessments, it always speaks about the total numbers of workers that are impacted. However, this information is insufficient for governments to decide an efficient uh, responding uh, policy. So in our project, we try to map out who are those vulnerable tourism workers in this pandemic by demographic variables and by regional specific information. In other words, we want to pinpoint who are those people, where do they live 
and what sectors they work for so that the governments can provide on-target supports to those groups. So I just want to give you some backgrounds before the COVID pandemic. In fact, tourism is an important sector for the Indonesia economies. In 2019, uh, both international travels as well as domestic travel contributes about 5.7 of national GDPs. And in 2019, Indonesia recorded the highest growth rate about of their international arrivals among all Southeast countries. In other words, Indonesia is very competitive in attracting international visitors. However, with the COVID situations, we know that the tourism sector basically collapsed. The international travel has reduced by 75% and domestic travel has reduced by 50%. So the purpose of this project is to use economic models to understand who are those people that are being affected in this situation. So first I would like to give you an overall output uh, sorry, overall outcome at the national levels. So we estimated from January to September, the nine month period last year, tourism has re uh, lost 200 million, uh, sorry, $200 trillion within the nine month period. And this corresponds to 1.7% reductions of GDP. But what's staggering is the impact on the employment. So as you can see from the numbers, uh, they are around, uh, sorry, uh, 3.4 million people, they are at risk. So this includes people that are working in the tourism sector, such as hotel, restaurants, transport, retailing, or any tour operator, as well as people that are working in the supply chain. Because when a hotel loses jobs, they will reduce the ordering from people that are working for these particular hotels. So they reduce the orders for food, they reduce the laundry service, they reduce all the marketing service for the hotels. So people in the supply chain are also affected. So if we look into the people in the sectors, as well as people in the supply chain, we estimate 3.4 million people are at risk just in this nine month period alone. And then I'm going to pass over to my colleague and uh, uh, Dr. Awaling is going to share with you the hotspots on the regional levels. Over to you. Okay, thank you. Next slide, please. Okay, so this is based on our estimation. Uh, so basically we are using interregional uh, input output and using the uh, Indonesian labor statistic to estimate the impact of uh, COVID-19 on the tourism sector employment. And as you can see, Bali is the most affected here with around 820,000 possible job losses. And the vulnerable groups, who are the, those who are youth and women and lower education with, with lower education and also low income in this region is exceeding 30% in, in this province. So the impact is, is, the, is very high in, in Bali. And then the second province is Yogyakarta with around 242,000 possible job losses. And in this region, 
the economic economic risk for the vulnerable groups such as women, youth, and those with low income and low education is around five to six times uh, than the average across the country. So it's it's quite high. And these two provinces are known to rely on tourism. And uh, although Yogyakarta uh, is not as famous as, as Bali in, in Australia, but in international level, Yogyakarta is, is quite famous for their uh, cultural tourism. And then the fourth, the third province is West Nusa Tenggara, which is next to Bali, with around 204,000 possible job losses. And in this region, female and lower educated workers, they have a very high uh, unemployment rates, which is more than 10%. And with the, with the increasing uh, tourism activities in Western Nusa Tenggara, this this impact on the vulnerable group is, is very, very high as well. And West Nusa Tenggara is recently opening up for the international tourists. Uh, maybe if you follow the World Superbike, it is recently uh, conducted there. And the, the fourth province is uh, Kapulan Rio, which is in Sumatra, with around 114,000 estimated job losses. In this province, one in every six low-income and female workers uh, related to tourism are expected to lose their their job and their income. So this, those are the main provinces affected by the tourism, uh, by by the crisis of COVID in tourism. Okay. So the, back to you, Helen. Lovely, thank you. And no surprise, I guess, that Bali is the most affected when it comes to job losses, but plenty of other areas in Indonesia also feeling the effects, um, which has to be noted because the government has a plan to improve those areas and make them more welcoming to tourists. So you do have to have a look at the workers that are in those areas and, and the skills that exist to make that possible. To give us a little bit more insight uh, on the economic impact of COVID-19 on the tourism sector and the policies that the government has introduced to try and help them through, I'm now joined by Dr. Futu Fatorai, Policy Analyst at the Ministry of Finance Indonesia. And as you heard, our co-lead researchers uh, have been able to work with him to ensure that they've got the correct information about this impact. So, Patfoto, thank you for joining us. And it's great to um, to learn a bit more from you. Could you just take us through uh, some of the information you have there? Yeah, thank you very much, Helen. Uh, good morning. My name is Futu. Uh, I'm a policy analyst at the Ministry of Finance. I also involved in the study uh, carried out by Yayan and yeah, Alin team, and uh, today I will uh, provide the information about how the Indonesian government respond to the COVID-19, especially for the tourism sectors. So uh, basically in, the, in 2020, uh, the, the economy is strong. The, the, the Indonesian economy is strong, but uh, recovered in 2020. If we look at here, the, the, the graphs, uh, the, the, the Indonesian economy is strong by uh, 
to minus 2.1% in 2020, but uh, recover uh, projected to buy to grow by 4% in 2021. In the tourism indicators, the tourism income of fall from 16.9 billion in 2019 and become 3.5 billion. It's about 18% decrease by in 2020. And it's getting lower into 2021 to become 0.4 billion dollar in tourism income. For the international tourists, the uh, the, the number of uh, tourists of in 2020 is sunk uh, to 4.1 million uh, from 16.1 million in 2019 and and projected to become only 1.5 million in 2021 uh, for domestic tourists although it's uh, reduced in 2020 2020 but uh, it's projected to recover slightly in 2021 because uh, we we have uh, not uh, to, uh, not uh, too much uh, restriction in 2021 and tourism employment as uh, explained by Yayan also decreased in 2020 by 2 million uh, jobs in, and it's uh, getting uh, recovered in 2020 to 14.3 million next slide please so the indonesian government are responsive to COVID. 19 the allocation of the 2021 National Economic Recovery Program is about 774.7 trillion or about 77 billion Australian dollar. Increase compared to the realization of the 2020 is about 50, uh, 575 um, trillion or 57 billion Australian dollar. There are five sectors that uh, focus on the government to uh, to to uh, to recovery program is a health sector, social protection programs, uh, medium, small, and uh, micro, small, and medium uh, enterprise support and priority programs. Where the tourism sector is uh, in the in in these programs and the business incentive. The health sectors is allocated about uh, two hundred and fourteen trillion. Social protection is about uh, one hundred and eighty six uh, trillion medium small uh, micro small and medium support is about 162.4 priority program is about 117 trillion and business incentive about 60 minister of coordinating economy is about in social protection uh, uh, loss guarantee contribution is about two uh, for six million workers and so how to build the new normal in the uh, tourism uh, attractions next uh, slide please and the social protesting program aims to reduce unemployment and poverty as we know from the study by uh, yayan the impact of the tourism uh, covid 19 on tourism uh, impact the the reducing of the number of employment but the government provide uh, such as uh, the social protection policy since 2020 and expanded today has been playing a very important role in protecting the poor and vulnerable 
We, for example, provide hardship relief, for example, for conditional cash transfer for, for uh, 10 million families, cash transfers for 10 million families, village fund cash transfer for 8 million families, electricity discount for 32.6 million beneficiaries. And also we provide uh, food and education support, for example, staple food card, food assistance, and internet quota subsidy for on online learning. And also support for to the workforce, for, uh, for example, for pre-employment cards for 5.9 million people and wage subsidy to 8.8 .8 million workers. And we can see in uh, unemployment rate is declining uh, in August 2020, uh, February 2021 from uh, by 0.8 percentage point from August 20. And the 440 rate also declined in March 20, 2021 uh, by 0.05 percentage point compared to September 2020. And the quality of human resources as reflected in human development index is maintained amid the pandemic through the provision of health service and adequate education even during the pandemic. Next slide, please. And if we can see here, the uh, restrained by the second wave COVID of uh, COVID-19, mobility index has continued to strengthen since mid-August. And this is uh, because the tourism, uh, uh, the source of the tourism sector is from the movement of the people. And we can see here the after experiencing downward trend uh, to uh, minus 17.8 in July, the people mobility has consistently increased until mid October. And consumption related mobility also increases in August to October, mainly in retail, recreation, grocery, and pharmacy. This development is in line with relatively better COVID 19 situation so basically this is uh if uh, the restriction is more uh, more or less uh, and then the we, we can hope that the, the tourism sector uh, will be recovered fast thank you thank you dr fushu that's that's great i'm just taking some notes from some of those numbers that you've put forward um uh, given what you've just said, particularly around the government assistance that has been provided to vulnerable people, I'd just like to check in with uh, Aulin and Yayen. Um, in your recommendations and report, you mentioned how important it was for the most vulnerable workers to receive government support and assistance during this time. Um, given what you've just seen and heard from the, the Ministry of Finance, do you think that that what is happening is the kind of program that is needed to help these workers through this period and help them get back to work when it becomes more available? Thank you, Helen. Uh, I think that's a good uh, question. Yes, we do think uh, the policies that's put forward by the government is really what the workers need right now. So based on the United Nations World Tourism Organization's recommendation, they think the cash transfer and uh, salary subsidies are the best supports the governments can provide to the affected workers. And the reason for that is because tourism are experiencing a large scale job losses at the same time. So the people who lost jobs basically have very similar skill sets. So you can imagine that uh, the people who lost job has similar skill set as you, and you try to look for something that's also similar in nature. So a lot of competitions for new positions. So tourism workers who lost jobs in the current moment will have great difficulty to find a new position, to find new source of incomes. 
So the best way to help them is to provide cash transfer or subsidies on their salary. If they are still at the position, but their working hour has been reduced, their salary has been reduced. So in that uh, kind of policy, basically we try to maintain the basic life or welfare of the workers they are directly affected. Yes, I just I would like to add uh, to Yayan's points that uh, this year the unemployment rate in the tourism sector is still very high because the tourism is still not opening up yet. So the cash transfers will will help this job, uh, those workers who lost the job, to maintain their their uh, their daily needs. And it, it will be very important to make sure that they will survive during this, this, uh, this difficult time. Mm. And I think, we, I guess what we should note with that is that we're talking about people who have those more casual jobs, the people who we rely on to do cleaning, uh, to do cooking, to be drivers, to, to do those behind the scenes roles, to be, be travel guides. Uh, they're the ones who, in your report, as you identified, are most likely to be without a job, whereas someone who's a middle, in a middle management role and can still sit at a desk and perhaps keep the business going. So it is those most vulnerable workers. Um, well, Widya, I'd like to go to you. We've, we're told that the tourism sector, it's, it's a slow start. Uh, Bali has opened up to international tourists, but the uptake is not there yet. The flights aren't coming in. But you also mentioned, you know, the, the staycation or an increase in domestic um, tourism in terms of inquiry. So can you give us a sense of what is actually happening now in terms of mm. trends and interest and bookings? Are we, what, are we seeing any pickup? Yeah, thank you, Helen. Uh, would you, uh, Stephen, would you mind uh, showing the slide number five? Yeah, before I answer that particular questions, thank you for the questions. Here in Traveloka, Helen, we uh, implement four uh, key activities or four key strategy. Number one is collaboration. Uh, we believe that, you know, if we want to make it stronger then you have to work together. Uh, this year itself, we work with the government and uh, private sectors to provide vaccination center, not only in Georgia uh, as one of our you know, primary city, but in Jakarta, but also in the airport of uh, International Airport Sukarno-Hatta. And we reach out more than 67,000 people uh, to be vaccinated through this collaboration. Point number two is we have this adaptation strategy in which we actually train. Now this is related to you know, human resources, right? We train and socialize to our partner on how to you know, maintain healthy and safe lifestyle in the partner's ecosystem, in the hotel, in the restaurant, and making sure that the certification uh, provided by the government, which is CHSE, is implemented strategically. Point number three is innovation. We're listening to customer concerns uh, throughout this year, right? Throughout these two years. And the customer concern has become the backbone of our innovation, Helen. That said, this year, we're going to launch the health service in Traveloka. This not only boosts the confidence to people who travels, but also to make sure that, uh, you know, the reminder that health is number one priority. You can travel, you can enjoy your time, but you have to be healthy in doing so, because this is not only for you, but for all the ecosystem, the tourism ecosystem. 
Point number four is the education. We uh, keep the customer informed and educated on the situation uh, on daily basis. We, in our platform, we have news, uh, you know, that is reliable and data and stat that people actually can check and understand what's going on in the world and in Asia. Now, answering your specific questions, the trend of staycation, Helen, I guess uh, because, you know, after, after we have locked down, uh, we are encouraged to work uh, at home. Apparently, lots of, you know, young people prefer to, you know, to work not only at home, but perhaps in hotels, because there they can balance their life, right? Between working, having a little bit of, of, you know, of relaxing time. And that's why I think the uh, staycation is actually increasing. Also the car or the land transportation has been uh, increasing as well, Helen. We see lots of people traveling using uh, land uh, services other than flight. Nevertheless, uh, after the number of people who got vaccinated is increased, then we see the trend of people uh, start, you know, uh, mobilizing one, one place to another. But as a company that always comply, that always concerned uh, with the situation and, you know, like support the government uh, goal or agenda, everybody who book in our platform always have reminder on vaccination as well on uh, COVID tests before they, they travel. I hope I answer your question, Helen, over to you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, you did. And I want to pick up on your point around, you seem to have created a bit of an ecosystem, a collaborative ecosystem, working with the government and other partners to, to help the tourism industry uh, pick up from a very difficult time. In the report, it was noted that collaboration between all players is the only way to help the industry come back stronger. So just quickly, I want to ask the researchers if, if that kind of plan is what they envisaged. And then we have a question from the audience, which I'm going to put to Pat Futu. So perhaps Pat Aulin and Anyayan first. Just that It just seems, you know, it's what I love about Indonesia, that civil society, that's how can we work together to, to help everyone. Um, yeah, maybe I can go first. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, I think the collaboration is the key. I think the collaboration has to happen between the business, the government, as well as the travelers. And with the collaboration, we are able to create a brand that Indonesia is safe to travel. And you also have the responsibility to travel safely so that you are fully vaccinated, you are not sick, you will not get other people uh, sick as well. Uh, I want to share an outcome from my colleagues that uh, who conducted a nationwide survey in Australia. So my colleague has been asking people in Australia uh, what foreign destination you want to travel to after the international border begins to open. And then people give our answers that's a little bit surprised because in the past, Indonesia is the top destination for Australians to visit. Uh, in terms of uh, foreign travel, because we are so close and Indonesia is so attractive. But right now, people's consideration change. They are not thinking about the most beautiful uh, beach or the most beautiful temples in Indonesia, but rather they are thinking which city or which place are the most safest. So how do they define safest? Basically, these cities have a high vaccination rates. These cities has tourism business. They are able to implement a very detailed uh, safety procedures to ensure that the people who arrive are health. 
and to ensure their staff are health so that we can create a very healthy uh, environment just as uh, Widya just mentioned. So I think the brand image is very important because sometimes people don't have the uh, exact information in terms of what kind of policy has been implemented at your destination. But if we can communicate the message to the potential travelers to ensure that, yes, we have did our best, we uh, measure every step has been taken care of. And if you follow the procedures, you can have a safe, uh, sorry, safe and healthy travel trips. So that's my point of view. And it's over to you, uh, Aulin. Okay, yeah. Uh, adding to the point from Yayan, in Indonesia, uh, the government uh, at the central is mostly giving like guidance. So it is up to the, the government at the province and district level, such as Bali, uh, the province of Bali, uh, they would need a guidance from the central government. In this case, Indonesia has launched like uh, Indonesia Care, which is like uh, a certification that uh, Ibuvidya has talked about. This is to show that uh, tourists can come to Indonesia and feel safe when, when, when they travel in Indonesia. And uh, recently, the Indonesian government in the middle of October, open up for international travelers from 19 countries. Uh, however, the, they, are, they are still not coming uh, like back as usual. However, with, with some event, international events such as the World Superbike uh, in uh, recent time, uh, some, some of these, these international travelers have, have coming as well. Yeah. Thank you. And I think as um, Widja pointed out earlier that, you know, they've been very strong in pursuing the use of that accreditation scheme, the cleanliness, health, safety, environment, sustainability scheme, the CHSE, which is provided. And I thought it was interesting that you referred to it as a healthier lifestyle as, as the way to frame it. It's not just about, you know, being COVID safe. It's about a healthier lifestyle, which um, which was interesting. Uh, I just will go to part four too, because we have a question from an audience member on how the informal workers in tourism can survive and the policies. You have answered it a little bit, but I guess perhaps having a look going forward, Dr. Futu, can you give us any idea of uh, what the government might do? I know that the budget hasn't been fully realized, so maybe there's some ways that that funding is going to be used. Yeah, I can. I think for informal sectors, uh, because they're 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 usually not registered in the uh, official system. But uh, we provide a uh, uh, lot of uh, social processing program for them. For example, we provide the PKH program Keluarga Harapan in Indonesia is about is a cash transfers to ten million uh, people uh, below the poverty line. Then we support it with uh, three hundred thousand. Uh, Rupiah per, per month for, for about uh, six months, so it's about uh, 1.8 million uh, per, 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 per uh, household. And then this is uh, uh, to, to help them to uh, the, the, their purchasing power parity, uh, to purchasing power, and then also to maintain their, their food. Uh, we, because we provide also the food aid to the 
to the poor and the vulnerable groups. I think the, for this, this is uh, will categorize uh, as the uh, informal sectors because um, we we know that informal sector also hit by the COVID 19 because uh, the, the the because of the restriction of the movement of people. Uh, and then uh, they, they they cannot uh, selling the, the the products or 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 work in the in the for example in the tourism sector the then then we provide it with the many uh, social assistance for them yeah. Fantastic, thank you. One thing I'd like to cover off on briefly before we finish, we've just got a bit over ten minutes, uh, is we're talking about the healthy environment, the safe environment. I'm thinking about these workers and the those connected to the tourism industry about having the skills to apply these sorts of standards um, because you know it's a whole new environment isn't it you have to you have to not just implement the accreditation but you have to have workers who give a sense that we know what we're doing it's safe you can feel comfortable here um, perhaps Buwiji, to you first, any thoughts around that? Do we, do we need to see workers being given more chance to, to skill up, so to speak? Yeah, definitely, Helen. Uh, thank you for raising that point. Definitely, because again, just like what you say, uh, being clean or you know implementing CHSE is one thing, but how to maintain their again their skill uh, to match with the need for you know future workforce in tourism uh, in the future is very very important. And therefore, actually, Traveloka works with the government as well to do this in a few areas in Indonesia. Helen, we train um, lots of. Uh, tourism players in uh, area close to Lombok and uh, Antipte as well as Bali. And we hope that we're still going to do this uh, in the long run. But Helen, please uh, allow me to give a, a really big credit to the government because not only uh, you know, support in uh, what you may call it subsidy or cash support that but food to, food to mention, government of Indonesia is actually doing lots of uh, work that try to leverage the tourism or maintain the tourism industry. One of them is by the campaign of Bangga Berwisata Indonesia, as well as Bangga Buatan Indonesia, as well as the Kartu Prakerja itself. So lots of work that have been done by the government and we really appreciate that. And we do really want to be part of the, the work. Thank you, Helen. Thank you. And Yayan or Alan, do you have anything to add to that? I know that's that's something that you wanted to look at. Uh, yes, so if I may, I would like to add uh, the digital training for the female uh, tourism entrepreneurship is really important. Uh, we found that in Indonesia, a lot of our tourism business, in fact, uh, was run by female entrepreneur and they operate a small or micro scale of business, but it's really vital for their families. And we also found that some of them are lacking the digital skills that's really required in this current moment. So when I say digital skills, I mean the ability to work comfortably with the software as well as the hardware. So when there's no tourists around, basically one important thing you can do is to keep contacts with your formal customers. You can contact them to uh, email, to e-newsletters, to social media platforms. But some of the entrepreneurs are really struggle with that element. So they lost contact with their customers. They are not able to provide them with the updated information in terms of, or oh, maybe our business are, are beginning to operate. We already fully vaccinated. We have very uh, good policy in terms of maintaining the hygiene level, et cetera. 
uh, we feel that keeping the contacts with the customer is important. But in this current moment, everything you can do is through digi uh, digital uh, communication. Mm -hmm. So upskill their digital capability is important. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, I'm, I'm adding to the point from Yayan is related to the policy uh, to for the tourism recovery. I think the government need to focus at the regional level because like uh, a very general policy with like one size fits all, it would not work. And it would be better if, if we looking at very specifically at its province, uh, what they need and what happened to that provinces and, and focusing on the tourism uh, recovery because like its, its provinces has different tourism uh, style such as Yogyakarta in, in Bali is completely different as well as uh, Lombok is also different so mm -hmm. it's very important to to pay attention at the making sure that the policy fits to each of these these provinces yes uh, I have I'm noting some questions and I will get to them but just quickly to Dr. Futo I know this isn't your area skills and training but the government did provide vouchers for people during the two years of the pandemic to help them upskill. Is that something that you think can continue to be valuable or perhaps tweaked to a, as in a regional way, as an example of, of a way to help these workers? Uh, yeah, I think uh, besides the improvement of the skills, uh, we also have, uh, uh, now, I think in 2020 and 2021, we provide the pre-employment card and then uh, the, the people for about 10 million uh, pre-workers or uh, can, can uh, like uh, submit, apply for the uh, training online. And then uh, they, they also get some, some, uh, some, some cash money for that. And then I think this is can improve their, their skills especially uh, in the tourism sectors because uh, when when there is no job uh, they, they are, they are uh, still at home then they, they, they can uh, uh, um, involve in the training and then then get get the get the improvement for their skills so I think this is a, a, a good, good program and also uh, to respond to Aline uh, about the, the regional response I think uh, one of the 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 aid from the government is the transfer as a block grant to the uh, local government. So I think the local government has a, a big uh, big uh, powers to 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 allocate uh, the 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 fund to to help the tourism sectors. Yeah. Helen, may I add one quick point, Helen? So uh, here I, I forgot to add, and thank you, Dr. Yayan, for pointing this out. There are two prongs in here in Traveloka that we've been doing, Helen. For the tourism worker, actually, uh, because we are, you know, our backbone is innovation and technology, uh, we try to encourage more uh, partners to go digital. Having said that, we actually provide them on how, you know, have the access to email, how to respond to customers using more digital uh, platforms so they have knowledge, higher knowledge, so they can do research by themselves in trying to mitigate at least the situation that, you know, uh, there are surrounding in their area. That's prong one. And prong two, Helen, we're not only talking about the tourism player, but we talk about the youth 
you know, this has been two years of, of pandemic and we have in Indonesia, there are so many young people who want to who want to innovate, want to create jobs. So uh, Traveloka is actually also providing training for them. We work with government and, and also some actually one of our strong, strongest partners also from Australia. We work with institution, we work with government to provide training on technology, on digital, with the hope that it's them who will create more job for those who lost job in the future. Thank you, over to you. Very good points. Thank you for bringing that up. We've only got a couple of minutes left, but uh, we've got a question, uh, one from Ide, and I think that's probably better answered by the researchers. It relates to some research that you're doing. So I think they might have some ideas for you. We'll direct that question to them, and, and if they can't answer now, we'll get back to you later. There's also a question from Dedi Setiawan around travel bubbles. Now, this, uh, this is what we would all love if we could have a little bubble with the country we would like to visit. But I think, you know, Delta ruined that and now the new variants are going to always put a slight spanner in the works. If I could just get some ideas briefly from you, and I'm guessing would you, you might be in a good position to answer this. Are we getting any signs of uh, any, a bubble vacation corridor between Indonesia and Australia yet? I mean, we, we hope so, but uh, just like what you say, uh, this is so unpredictable, right, with, with, with the recent uh, information, but we do hope so that there's a you know, big uh, you know, change uh, in tourism industry uh, very soon. And, and based on uh, that, the research from the World Bank, they say that you know, the change will, will go very soon next year, and we are looking forward to, to seeing that, Helen. And does anyone else have any inside information they can share? No, we're all just fingers crossed. <laughs> Thank you so much, would you? Look, it, it's, you know, it, it is so tricky um, trying to make decisions around the tourism sector and what's safe, what is not safe. Clearly, the tourism industry in Indonesia is finding ways to have accreditation, to keep people going through this very tricky time. I think that we should also just talk briefly about, you know, it's going to be a new normal. We're going to have to do rapid tests. I think there was a conference in Bali over the weekend and before you went into the hall, you did a PCR rapid test. This, how, this is something we're going to have to get used to. How important is it that people accept that, you know, these are the things we're going to have to do? You mentioned it briefly, but I guess a hands up. Who thinks that PCR testing will be around for at least a year? Yeah, widget, great. I've chosen the right one. Oh, the researchers aren't sure. And Pat Fuji is with the government, so he, he's not allowed to say anything. <laughs> may, may, I, may, I, may I add uh, one point on that, Helen? I mean, this is, you know, this personal perspective. I mean, uh, the thing is, if we have that test, we actually travel with, with more confidence. That's point number one, right? Mm -hmm. We actually our our sorry sanity level actually right and that's number one point number two is if we are safe and then we travel then the people in the destination will be also safe you know and i think it's always it's always uh you know better to 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 be safe for every to create like safety uh you know net for everybody i think that's an excellent point to end on thank you so much
We do. And thank you to all our panelists today for their for their great conversation and answers to our questions. Could you please join me in thanking Dr. Yayan Sun, Senior Lecturer at the University of Queensland, Dr. Ilmia Wan Awalin, Lecturer at Universitas Erlanga, Widiasari Listo Wulan, apologies, Vice President of Public Policy, Government Relations and CSR at Traveloka, and Dr. Futo Fature, Policy Analyst at the Ministry of Finance, Indonesia. Thank you all very much for your time today. That's been great. Okay, well now we're going to take a short break before starting the next session, which looks at the perplexing question of health versus economy in a pandemic. What do you choose? Before we start that subject, um, take some time, stretch your legs, get a cup of coffee or tea or a drink of water and join us again in about 10 minutes and we'll have a look at that impossible question. Thanks so much for your attention so far. Hello, I'm Helen Brown. Welcome to our session on health or economy in Indonesia, making the best impossible decision during COVID-19. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm Helen Brown. I'm the lead for the communications and outreach team at the Australia Indonesia Centre. And it's our pleasure to bring you the third day of the PEAR Summit. Now, for your viewing, we suggest that you select the gallery view for watching this webinar. It will allow you to see all the speakers, including our sign language specialists. And at the moment, we're joined by Ibu Sonia from In Asli, which is lovely to have her with us. Earlier, we have Pat Widodo. And if you only want to see the speakers rather than just every screen that's up in this, um, in your view options, you can click on the show non-video participants box or unclick it. Uh, and you can find that by there's, you know, those three little dots at the top of one of the screens. So have a look for that as well. And that will make it a smoother viewing experience for you, but also allow you to see everyone and uh, the slides and our specialists. Okay, so in this session, we're going to talk to our researchers who've looked at one of the biggest challenges facing polymakers in the coronavirus pandemic. How do you balance out the economic needs of a community while protecting people's health and also managing health systems? Now, the Indonesian government is not alone in struggling to get this balance right. Um, in that country, though, particularly, we saw infections soar. It had one of the highest infection rates in Southeast Asia at one point. And also, though, many people were left in precarious financial positions. Uh, they couldn't socially distance, or if they did, it meant they literally could not go onto the streets and work and earn an income. So imagine trying to decide which way to go, and it does seem like an either or question. What do you look after the most? So what the research team at the Australia Indonesia Centre set out to do was look at the modelling, the mathematical modelling, the social modelling around these two questions and finding models that they could combine to measure the impact depending on the action taken. So if you decided to focus more on health, what would that mean for the economy or vice versa? 
Now they're going to take us through that modeling and why they came up with it. Uh, we're also joined by someone who has a commercial perspective on this challenging question for governments and in particular for Indonesia. So with that all said, uh, I will introduce our panelists. Firstly, Dr. Pierre Lebodic is the COVID-19 research co-lead at Monash University in Melbourne. We're also joined by Associate Professor Sri Astuti Tamrin, COVID-19 research co-lead at Universitas Hazanudin. And finally, the third panelist is John Doverston, who is a partner for Asia Pacific with PwC. And John is based in Jakarta. So he's definitely got a grounds eye view of what's happening in that country. Thank you all very much for joining us today. It's much appreciated. Uh, I think that perhaps what we do need to do is uh, understand the, the background to the research first and maybe Ibu Tuti, could you perhaps just start off by explaining some of the work that you've done and then I think I'll get Dr Pierre to go through some of the findings. Okay, uh, thank you Helen. Uh, good morning ladies and gentlemen, thank you for uh, giving me a chance to present our uh, COVID-19 project. Um, and this is an honor for me to be here. I am Sri Astuti Tambrin from Universitas Hasanuddin. In this section, I would like to present our project titled uh, How Our Economy Making the Best Impossible Decision. Uh, this is our uh, project collaboration between uh, Universitas Hasanuddin and Monash University, funded by IEC as part of Partnership for Australia Indonesia Research. <coughs> We are a large team, people with a short project timeline consists of uh, Sudirman Nasir, Firdaus Kasim, Dewi Lestari, Salman Amir, Siswanto from Universitas Hasanuddin, and Pierre, Andreas, Ahmad Kasimi, and Andrew from uh, Monash University. As we know that um, reducing uh, economic activity is necessary to help contain the spread of COVID-19 and safe lives. However, the consequence of economic decline can be <coughs> long-standing and for people in extreme financial uh, precarity lead to life-threatening uh, situation. And government need to make uh, the impossible decision of optimizing well-being of their population from both a health and economical perspective in the short to long term. And as we know, managing the COVID uh, pandemic requires making some tough choices between protecting health and the economy. And most modeling only consider one of these. Indonesia announced the first cases of COVID-19 on March 2020. And since the first cases, several non-pharmaceutical interventions have been implemented in Indonesia. The first intervention was the introduction of uh, thermal scanning at public places. And additional, Indonesia national government imposed order for public to conduct social distancing and school university closure. This intervention were followed by face mask obligation at uh, public places. Provincial government also introduced their uh, containment intervention we call a uh, large scale social restriction or PSDB. 
PSBB is policy. It's not actually a national policy. It's a policy in which its region needs to meet certain criteria and obtain approval from the central government in implementing it. And in Indonesia, there are uh, 22 cities or districts that implement the uh, PSBB. Unlike other countries in the world, Indonesia is struggling in dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, with the exception of several countries, especially East Asia countries that have had a pandemic response protocol, as well in place due to um, their experiences in uh, dealing with the pandemic in 2011. The COVID-19 pandemic has hit the Indonesian economy quite hard. Slowing COVID means slowing the economy. And what's the right balance between this opposing objective of keeping people healthy and keeping the economic strong? Can both aspects be considered in a single model to better understand the trade-off? Therefore, the aim of our project is to create a scientific model to help local and national government decide how to maximize economic activity while keeping COVID-19 under uh, control. And in our uh, study, there are two kinds of data used, uh, namely input-output 2010 as economic data and COVID-19 uh, data set uh, as well. And actually, this is hard to get and often quite historical and need to make lots of assumptions about parameter uh, of the model. And the model is still uh, quite simple, but uh, given input data corresponding to COVID-19 pandemic in Indonesia, uh, we will analyze the solution provided by uh, our model and compare them with a simple baseline that consists in having uh, no governmental uh, intervention in order uh, to assess the methodology we have uh, measures such as lockdowns have on both or uh, this uh, aspect. And the detail of our methodology uh, will be explained more by our colleague, Fiere. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, Bhututi. That's great background to the research that you've done. Uh, Pierre, I will bring you in here. Lovely to have you join us. Now, you are uh, an optimization expert. So many things I could say. Yeah. <laughs> How do you optimize my life? But when it comes to mathematical modeling, you've you've developed a, a this hybrid model. Before we before we go into it a little bit, I just want to understand why um, you've brought together a lot of disciplines to do this. Is that is that one of the reasons why you think this is a reasonably tight model that you've come up with? Um, yeah, I guess you know the. So I'm, I'm good at models, but uh, the problem is, you know, you could make a model and you think it's good, but until people who actually um, deal with the reality uh, look at your model and say, okay, this is a good parameter or not, then really the model is not really uh, tested. And in this particular case, well, we needed people on the ground uh, who had, um, you know, health knowledge, uh, economy knowledge, all that stuff. Um, to tell us, you know, whether our model made any sense or not. So, but we were, we had an idea of what the problem was uh, in terms of the, you know, how we could model the problem, but then whether that uh, held uh, any, any water, whether that made any sense. Uh, so we need that, we needed the uh, Hassan team 
to tell us whether that was the case or not. And not just that, but also to give us the data because uh, it's extremely hard to get all of this data. We need you know, economy data for all the provinces and all the sectors, and we need the health data. So uh, that's definitely something that we were completely reliant uh, on them to get. Hmm. Okay, well, I think if you don't mind, we've got a, a bit of a hypothetical set up when we modeled this. Uh, and we can put up an infographic just to show people. Now, there is a bit of information on it. Uh, it's, it's where you've applied the modeling and we've got sort of the two, two extreme scenarios and then we've got three in between, which is tweaking the settings, so to speak. I'll just let people know, Pierre, that the assumptions for this are that we're talking about a six-month time period three identical regions, A, B, and C. Region A has an exposed population of 1,000, so they're infected but not yet infectious. Regions B and C have zero exposed population. Each region has a population of 5 million, 100 hospital beds, 10 ICU beds, and a customer demand of 100 million rupiah. Now, I'm thinking custom demand, that's a function of GDP in a single economic sector. So we're looking at different provinces, yeah. Okay, and, and so lots in that, but perhaps just talk us through what this, you know, you've applied these hypothetically, the modeling and what, what that shows us. And we're just on screen now, you can see those scenarios. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. So um, first I wanna say, why is it that we're showing th this hypothetical scenario? Uh, we thought, um, so we, we did the study on the actual data and it's just a bit too sensitive to, to say, oh, what happens if we do this? What happens if we do that? How many people, people die? Uh, that's a bit too sensitive. And um, also this was a study that was done pre-vaccine and pre-Delta. And so the data would not really be relevant today anyway. And so we have this hypothetical scenario where we still make the same decisions as in our original study, and the decisions are whether we trigger a soft lockdown, a hard lockdown in, in, in the three cities or in which we can decide individually. And then we also have uh, connections between the cities which we can close. And then every time we impose a lockdown or every time we close a connection between cities, uh, of course, the pandemic starts spreading less, but also the economy suffers. And, and I guess here we wanted to to try, you know, which were the different trade-offs, you know, um, in terms of if we close everything or if we um, if we leave everything open, what are the trade-offs? And here at the top, we have the two extremes that Helen indicated. And so on the left at the top, this is the health focus. So basically we close everything, all the roads, full lockdown. Uh, and so we get an economic shortfall of 20%, which means compared to not doing anything, we lose essentially 20% of GDP uh, for that, that particular example uh, in one year. Uh, but in exchange, uh, we really minimize the number of deaths in this example. And so we have 162 deaths. And if we take the other extreme of this uh, example, then we leave everything open. And here it says 0% shortfall. In practice, it's not exactly zero. There's a little bit of, of shortfall because there's economic um, implications of having people who uh, die and having people who are sick. But 
it's very marginal compared to actually shutting down everything. And so, and you, you, but in this case, you have uh, 4,000 deaths and that's after six months. Of course, at this point, if we continued the simulation because we have many more infected people, it would continue to climb exponentially, but that's beyond the scope of this example. Uh, Helen, uh, maybe I wanna go back to you if you wanna add anything at this point. That's fine. Yeah, thanks, Pia. I'm sure that we will definitely delve into that. But what we're trying to do here is say, look, here's a model and here's a way, here's how it actually works in real life. Um, of course, you know, not every model is perfect. So we will eventually be putting out the full methodology behind this research. I apologize, Pierre, I'm sure you're close to perfect. But um, the science of research is we're always looking to improve. So the Australia Indonesia Centre will be making this full modelling available um, in the near future so that people can take a look at it. Um, I want to go in more into it, but I, I want to bring John Doverston into the conversation now just to get a sense, John, on the ground, the, the, the challenge that was going on between choosing the economy and choosing people's health. Two things really high stakes when it comes to Indonesia. Um, you're talking about a large informal sector, but also a health system that wasn't prepared for the impacts of pandemic scale. So take us a bit through what you saw happening in Indonesia and, and where it's at now, because you know the, this modeling was done during a particularly um, pre-Delta, but just when we realized how serious this was. Yeah, thank, thanks, Helen, and um, it's certainly great to be here, and good morning and good afternoon uh, for everyone that's joined us, depending on where you are located today. It, you, you're right, it is an impossible um, question, and I congratulate uh, our colleagues on, on preparing the modelling, because it, um, it is a very challenging and continues to be a very challenging uh, point here. Maybe I can just talk about a couple of the uh, the economics and what's important with this pandemic is really it's a you know it's a health it's a health uh, crisis and previously we've had crises around um, you know the GFC and the uh, the oil price shocks and such like that which were largely financial crisis uh, and people could still go about their day to day work and still mingle with each other um, and obviously from a GDP perspective globally this is estimated to have about a 3.5% decline in global GDP as compared to say the GFC uh, that had a 1.79%. And obviously there's, there's health issues, there's just people's uh, mental health issues as well as their physical health issues. Um, in, the, in Indonesia, they've actually uh, restarted some of the, uh, the lockdowns because of the new variant and still uh, as they race to get a higher level of vaccination. What that means on the street is that, um, you know, to go into anywhere, you really need to show that you're vaccinated. You, they've got a very good uh, tracing app that they, they use and a check-in app um, that has progressed over the time. Um, but maybe if I just talk a little bit about the economy and I, I've joined some of the other sessions, Helen, and there's been a lot of data that's been put out there and hopefully uh, the people joining today have had a chance to, to look at that across the different sectors. But you know, the ramifications of, of what happened uh, with this physical distancing is about 1.8 million people became unemployed uh, through to February 21, uh, another 3.2 exited the labor market. And, and I think strikingly, you know, 2.8 million people have fallen back into poverty uh, over that period of time, because as you mentioned, the largely uh, informal sector is a very significant informal sector of, uh, of employment, uh, which is if you think about the contractors and uh, gig workers and such like that, 
um, and the types of industries that people work in uh, around the retail, uh, manufacturing and, and farming. So now the government has uh, importantly uh, provided uh, a lot of social support. And I think what we've seen even around the, the globe is the lockdown, um, the, uh, the, the vaccination rates then increase, which releases the lockdown and, and social support. But in some countries, we can see actually quite a lot of disharmony uh, with, with the public, right? We're seeing protests around the globe occur and such like that. And I think in Indonesia, from my lens, uh, they've done a really uh, good job at balancing, at balancing that and for people actually uh, obeying and complying uh, with the rules. I flew in here in March. Uh, earlier this year, so it was probably uh, you know at the height uh, of the period of, of the pandemic. So, um, and maybe just one other comment I'd make on there, as and, and the models, as uh, as Pierre said, can't be perfect. But the you know the impact, and and I have got four kids, uh, and a lot of the, my team have a lot of kids, uh, you know across across there, and you'll see um, see people working at home with a kid on their lap, or the kids running around and joining the video call. And there's been a lot of kids out of school and you know, an interesting sort of statistic I, I looked at, but they said 7 million new graduates, um, about half of a million fewer youth entered the labor force in 2020. So people are being called the sort of the COVID-19 uh, schooling. And I think what's the ramifications of that as, as Indonesia continues to grow uh, in many areas, education is, is vital that ongoing growth. So maybe just a, that's a couple of comments, uh, Helen. That's great. Thank you very much. Ibututi, getting a sense from you, you're based in Makassar, that's where the university is. Uh, how helpful do you think this model would be to provincial governments? Uh, Makassar is an example that have been dealing with high infection rates. Uh, okay, thank you, Harold. Uh, even though this uh, model is uh, quite simple, but uh, this model is being useful for Indonesia, uh, especially in uh, South Sulawesi, because we know the economic recovery cannot be achieved without uh, significant progress in controlling the pandemic. And by creating a scientific model, uh, we can help local uh, and national governments uh, to decide how to maximize uh, economic activity while uh, keeping COVID-19 uh, under control. And uh, this is not just for uh, Indonesia or uh, South Sulawesi, but also for other countries and other provinces uh, in the world, because countries uh, that control the pandemic better also uh, achieve more uh, meaningful economic uh, recovery. Thank you. And Pierre, of course, we now have vaccination. We've gone through the Delta variant as well. The, your modeling was done pre that. How uh, can it be used, even though we have these other variables turning up, turning up? So you would need to adjust some parameters and possibly some of the modeling as well. So in the current model that we're using, which is an SEIR model, which is super classic in uh, epidemiology, then you know you sort of categorize people between people who are. Uh, susceptible to get infected, uh, who have been infected, who are, have recovered and so on. And I guess if we had people who were vaccinated, we could simply duplicate these number of uh, cases into people who are vaccinated and non-vaccinated. And then we would just need to add the data that's missing between these blocks, which is, 
well, how likely are you to recover if you're uh, infected, but you're vaccinated? So we would need to add these parameters in, but from then on, the model would be good to go again. So it is something that can be shaped to the circumstances. It's tractable, so to speak. Well, I mean, it's funny you say tractable because in my field, usually it means you can actually compute the solution. Uh, but in this particular case, the model would become more complex. Uh, and so most likely it would take longer to run. And that's always an issue. And this is currently a limitation of our approach, even though from an outsider's point of view, it might look very simple. It is already complicated from the point of view of a machine. And interestingly, you know, everybody is very critical to our um, decision makers about you know, whether they make the right decisions for us. But in fact, even in this very simplified model, uh, a computer is not able to find the best solution. <laughs> so anyway. Yeah. It, it, it's another tool then, another potentially another very handy tool. And I'm wondering, Ibututi, you know, questions around. So Indonesia, like many countries, has relied on um, information, say, around data mobility. You know, where are people moving? Are they moving? Are the restrictions working? And then on the other side, you've got hospitalisation rates, etc. Um, does this model does this model use that sort of information around mobility or is it just something completely different for policymakers to to consider I, I get the question is actually would it help them make a decision about coming out of lockdown or easing restrictions because that's you know where one of the tensions was Uh, Helen, uh, actually, um, uh, in our model, economy activity uh, is uh, highly depend on openness and, and connectivity. And in this case, uh, we use transport and uh, logistic moving goods between uh, area. Also, uh, movement, movement of uh, people uh, feel uh, short edges uh, in the workplace. So um, a stimulation of demand uh, to uh, movement of people in both uh, locally uh, and long distance, uh, like uh, uh, tourism, uh, is still uh, possible to apply in the uh, in the next uh, uh, model, I think. But uh, as Pierre say, it's a need uh, more uh, hard. Uh, work and more uh, multidisciplinary uh, people uh, that can involve in uh, our uh, next extend uh, model. Helen. Mm, fantastic, thank you. And just a reminder, you can put a question to the panelists uh, in the Q and A box at the bottom of your screen. It normally is. John, I want to ask you a question, but did you have anything you wanted to add off the back of that? I, look, I think uh, modelling is a really important part to, um, obviously, th there's no rule book for a pandemic of this nature. Uh, with a really connected global world, we jump on planes, we see how quickly it moves. Um, we see how quickly vaccine makers have come in. We're now seeing certain countries um, require booster shots. Um, so I think modelling is, is, is very important. We've got some really intelligent people out there that access data, historical data, use that data to project forward. And I think that is really important in policy making decisions, um, economical decisions, because we, we've really got to balance the two. Um, and of course, one life lost is too many. 
uh, lost. And so it is, it is really an impossible uh, situation. And how, how do these experiences and how do the models actually, as they will gather more data as we live this, uh, live through this pandemic, how will they inform future decisions and future focus areas and future preparedness? So I don't think a model just exists for the lockdown phase. I think a model just begins at the lockdown phase with that important data and then and takes us forward and looks at, you know, what sort of supply chain for vaccinations, what sort of manufacturing, uh, what sort of storage um, and what sort of medical support and, and types of things can inform, uh, you know, government policy and business policy making going forward. And speaking about business policy, how how did business read the signs from government? Uh, I'm thinking more big business now. We can talk about the informal sector in a moment. But when it comes to the bigger companies, John, how are they reading the government's moves? Uh, and, and are they starting to come out now? You know, there was an easing of restrictions. We've seen a slight tightening again, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, look, I think uh, I think everyone's been in this together, right? Um, because uh, there's not one person in my team or one person in the market that I talk to that hasn't been directly impacted uh, by COVID and, and negatively impacted, whether it's been the loss of family member lives or the, themselves uh, being impacted. So I think you know the alignment has been very strong. I think from a business concept. Uh, perspective. Uh, businesses, I work a lot with financial services and the services industries and such, they very quickly pivoted and probably accelerated their digital transformation. Um, someone had said to me, you know, it used to take a long time to get certain things done around uh, organizing teams within an organization to come together to enable online, to enable digital transformation. And when the pandemic came, um, they had a unifying event that enabled a lot of the teams within an organization come together and quickly accelerate, um, you know, banking and others, how their customers, online retailing. And so I think people have really uh, adjusted to the circumstance uh, and modified their working behaviors. Um, accordingly, in my office, we still, uh, because we can work remotely, um, people don't come into the office and still continue to work remotely. Uh, I think that what it did start to do was really um, accelerate uh, the public's transition to, to the digital economy, which is a very big part of Indonesia. You know, there's a number of unicorns that have been established in Indonesia, um, which are all around that digital economy. And in previous sessions that we've heard about uh, the educational programs and, and such that are going in there. But, you know, it's all about transformation in Indonesia. You know, it's transformation of supply chains, transformation of workforce, transformation of customer experience, transformation of the business, transformation of the economy. And I think therefore that, that we're in this medical situation together um, has, has people behave appropriately. I, you know, people are fully masked when you walk around. I mean, I live in Jakarta, so I see it from that front. Um, and, but I also see that uh, these unifying sort of digital acceleration points uh, have been really, um, you know, creation of online channels and such. Now that goes to the medium and small uh, size enterprises and their ability to participate in that. But from the big business end of town, um, there's certainly been a, you know, alliance with the government's policy and we haven't seen social disruption like we're seeing in other countries, Helen. Thanks very much, John. It should be noted that some studies have shown there was a, a distinct pivot by MSMEs as well to the, the digital or the e-commerce online space. Um, a little bit dependent on ability to take up digital skills. 
which is something we discussed uh, in one of the last sessions, actually. But I think that there is there's some really good points. So thank you. One of the other things that we see happening in this as the question around health versus economy is thrown around, that whichever decision is made, there are accusations or observations about someone's agenda being at play. You know, maybe so-and-so uh, sector wants the economy to open up more or somebody else is more interested in the health sector. How does this modelling help with those perhaps internal agendas? Uh, ease, ease may not be the word, but, you know, provide some kind of a guide as to how the decisions are being made so there's there's less of that question around is this is this a particular agenda a bit of bit of a convoluted question but you know it's it, it's about transparency really isn't it about the decisions do you think this model helps with that and i'd be keen to hear from Bhututi first given her experience on the ground and pierre as well So, Tuti, are you going first? You can go in first, Pierre. Uh, oh, I think I think Helen wanted you go first, so please go ahead. <laughs> I just wasn't sure whether you were unmuted or something. Go for it, Tuti. Okay then. Uh, as uh, said by Helen, uh, it seems um, uh, the uh, economic reflect. Uh, recovery uh, in Indonesia, as I said before, is uh, cannot be achieved without significant uh, progress in controlling uh, this uh, uh, pandemic. And then, uh, as uh, John uh, said also, that uh, actually um, data is because uh, I'm uh, involved in data in this uh, project. Data is hard to get and often quite uh, historical. And then uh, we need to make lots of uh, assumption. Uh, about the parameter of the model and uh, data on COVID is now uh, more uh, readily available uh, compared uh, when modeling was uh, first done by uh, our team. Uh, and then uh, exact value for economic impact are less uh, important than uh, the relative uh, size as well. And then that's why uh, external impact or show, uh, shocks like uh, impact of um, international shipping Capacity, uh, cost of uh, import, it's hard to uh, predict and include in uh, our model uh, as well. And besides that, computationally optimization is uh, model is, uh, as I say, by Pierre, is very large and, 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 and difficult uh, to uh, solve uh, as well. Uh, but even though uh, our model is still uh, quite simple, but we can make this more sophisticated. Uh, but uh, limited by data and uh, computation uh, power. Uh, so um, uh, my question is, uh, can reliable enough result uh, to uh, produce quickly enough to make a model a contribution uh, to uh, a policy? I think that's a more a big uh, a question that we need to uh, answer for uh, the next uh, uh, reset, uh, I think, Helen. Very good. Well noted. Thank you. And Pierre? Yeah, so, uh, so on the question on, of whether a model is useful um, to policy makers, uh, I think it is absolutely useful. I'm not saying, you know, our particular model 
and methods are you know more useful than others but i think it's very important to have a model especially if you can make that model public um in particular well you know there are everybody's concerned but there's also a lot of misinformation about whether the government even wants what's best for us uh and you know it's i think it's important for anybody who makes these important decisions to have a justification uh, and be able to show everyone that, okay, this is the data we have, this is the model we have, these are the conclusions. Now, if you disagree, you need to disagree with the data or the method, or, but you know, if you put the two together, you get the, the decision. So I think it makes it very easy for the governments to, um, to open a discussion that is about what's best for everyone rather than just people attacking them. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I, I understand. We've got a question now from the audience and uh, Bututi and Pierre, you'll be able to answer it. But John, I think you could also provide some perspective on how rural Indonesia is different to the more populated areas. The question is, in Indonesia, as in Australia and other parts of the world, the spread of COVID centres around the highly populated areas. Capital-centred decisions tend to not serve the needs of the regional areas. How should governments make decisions that accommodate the needs of the rural areas that are less impacted to ensure that their economy is supported and protected? Now, Pierre and Bututi, I'm guessing that they those areas could use this modelling as well, as an example. Uh, and the Indonesian government has been sort of working province by province in terms of social restrictions. And, and then, John, your thoughts on that sort of city-rural conundrum. Um, Pierre, you might like to go first this time, then Bututi, and then John. Sure. Yeah, so I, look, I don't have much, but I, um, I think it's, it's really tough to include fairness in models, uh, because even defining fairness formally is extremely difficult. What is a fair decision? Um, if you segregate, let's say, rural and and uh, and urban areas, you know, maybe maybe if you do the same for everyone, at least it's fair on some level. But perhaps one area will suffer more than the other, and so it's yeah. I, I don't actually have a good solution. I, I I acknowledge that this is a problem, and we our model doesn't address it uh we could definitely try to include something but right now it's it's super tricky i can't i don't know what i would do to include it in our model so yeah uh, no good solution sorry <laughs> that's okay it, it's it's a good question we can't have answers for everything we just you know need to keep trying bututi uh yeah uh, actually significant effect on uh, both economy and uh, health uh, from policy uh, measures and uh, border closures. It's uh, important to consider uh, this uh, simultaneous uh, because why? Be uh, if the government uh, apply smart policy setting, uh, that make a generally perform better than a single uh, state uh, static approach. Uh, that's why a uh, clear uh, opportunity to have uh, such as a track of solution that uh, avoid the extreme of both uh, health and uh, economic uh, impact. And I think that's a promising approach, uh, but a lot more work 
to be done, uh, Helen, uh, to uh, answer uh, the audience question about uh, uh, how we involve like at, in our model uh, and consider the rural compared uh, to the uh, urban area. Thank you, Bhututi and John. Yeah, thanks, Helen. And I just add my comments to the uh, to the agenda point. I think um, around the modelling informing decisions. The previous question. So to me, it's three words: information, transparency, and trust. And I think that if people are dealt uh, information that's uh, transparent, the information around modelling and economic um, balance is there, uh, then they build trust in in what people are saying and and will align to that. I think I think this question is a really good question. Um, this really points uh, in in probably. Uh, my involvement around the the large informal sector and where that informal sector actually sits. Uh, interestingly, it's you know they estimate. I read one report that estimated that the informal sector is about three quarters of Indonesia's labour force uh, could be classified as that. So I think that often in those areas, it's around the agriculture, wholesale, retail trade, and manufacturing, and much many of those are obviously uh, situated outside of of the main capital cities. The government has. Uh, obviously embarked on a number of um, you know, social benefits, so food, uh, utilities relief, some, some payment and such like that. Uh, also, I would say to my earlier comment about the ability of students uh, and people to access a digital environment, whether that's online schooling uh, for the hours they need to, to whether they have a appropriate sort of infrastructure around them to actually enable the kids to be at school, uh, whether the parents are out working, um, or whether or that that's you know other studies I've looked at indicate a number of people uh, students took up other jobs whilst they were still at school. So I think I think those um, I think those segmentation of those types of, um, you know, again, as Pierre said, we could, we could do a lot of things in, as he said, we could do a lot of things in a model, but I think that the government has, has tried to do that from more the social benefits perspective. Um, but I think that, uh, again, to me, it informs what, what, what's our learning today um, of what some of the additional support and some of the infrastructure that needs to be put in place in those communities. Um, so whilst that's not an answer, I think that we, we, we know more uh, today from the data than, uh, than we have historically known. And it's an opportunity therefore to, to further enhance uh, the well-being of people in those communities. And, and just briefly to wrap up, when we look at this question of health and or economy, can I get um, a quick point from all of you on what you're seeing where you are now? And that includes you, Pierre, in Australia, you know, as, as, as policymakers grapple with this question. So, Bhututi, um, I'll start with you just to give us a, a quick snapshot of what, it's, what is happening now for you, where you are in Indonesia, and then John and then Pierre to finish. Um, uh, thank you, Helen. Uh, <clears throat> uh, actually, it's a really hard actually decision which one should uh, government choose between uh, economic and health because uh, both of them is uh, more important at the moment. Uh, but as I said before, that uh, slowing COVID uh, means uh, slowing the economy. That's why uh, in this case, uh, the government uh, need to uh, more carefully in decide which one should they uh, prefer first, either economic or in health. Because I say that it seems that the government in Indonesia tends to focus more on handling the economy 
uh, then help uh, at the first time. And then we can see that the government uh, did not want to take a firm step to hinder human uh, mobility. So when the government is more focused uh, keeping uh, the economy going, and then the number of confirmed positive cases is increasing. And our health system is overwhelmed. That's why at the same time, the economic activity is um, naturally slowing down as uh, people avoid shopping uh, some places. That's why my closing statement that slowing COVID means uh, uh, slowing the economy. And then the Indonesian government need to carefully uh, uh, make a policy uh, and is uh, and, uh, and, uh, uncertainty uh, situation uh, right now. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, Bototi. It's just laying it out as it is. Thank you. Uh, John? Uh, yeah, so I, I think, you know, Indonesia continues to be a, you know, significantly growing economy. Um, and I think that uh, there's a lot of that transformation, albeit a lot more digital. Uh, being enabled, uh, whilst I agree 100% with Ibu Tuti's uh, points about you need to have a healthy uh, society to, in all, and to enable that. Um, so I think it is a very fine balance. As you walk around the street, you see a lot more people out exercising on bikes they've bought. Uh, if I think about Sertiman in Jakarta, um, you see, but you see a lot of shops that have closed down and you go to some of the shopping malls and they're, they're very empty. Uh, and that's again to the earlier comment that's a, that's a Jakarta lens, if you like. Um, so I think I think the government is trying to balance it. Um, I think that that's really hinged on a continued vaccination uh, and reductions of the spread of variants that might come out. But there's unquestionably Indonesia will continue to transform and grow as a nation. Uh, that's the nature of of. of life here if you like so um but but that will obviously be significantly impacted whilst that remains thank you thank you john and finally to you pierre yeah so look uh, i think australia is extremely lucky because uh, well we this economy versus health problem is a lot easier in my mind uh in indonesia and in many uh developing countries you know um, you have to choose between health and economy, but then if economy suffers too much, then in turn, there's repercussions for health, you know, uh, and so it's even more complicated than what we have modeled. And in a sense, in Australia, uh, my perspective, and at least relatively speaking, um, people who have uh, not been able to work because of lockdowns or something like this, um, I don't think they have suffered quite as much as people in Indonesia. So. The problem is a lot easier, which is not to say that you know it's still not complicated. But I think I think we're very lucky in Australia in that respect. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much, uh, all of you, for that fantastic conversation. Uh, such a big question and so hard to encapsulate it um, in a in a panel discussion without showing you the modelling. Although, mind you, I have seen the modelling and I have no idea what all those numbers are. So I need to do a maths course again. 
um, and we are going to release that modelling to you as well very soon. If you uh, have signed up to the Australia Indonesia Centre updates, you will get a notice about that. If you've registered for this webinar and have signed up for the updates, then you will get a notice as to when that full report is available. And that will also give you that infographic that we showed as well, that example that the researchers have applied. So a really interesting piece of work and such a great conversation and an important conversation to have. So thank you to the three of you for your time and your efforts, much appreciated. And I would like to probably thank the panelists and remind you that we've been speaking to Dr. Pierre Lebodic, the COVID-19 Research Co-Lead from Monash University, Associate Professor Astuti Tamrin, also a COVID-19 Research Co-Lead based at Universitas Hazanudin, and John Dallastan, Partner Asia Pacific for PwC in Jakarta. Thank you to all of you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank all you. right. Thank you, Bo. And to take sitting back and taking all that in has been our next guest, our discussant for the session. Dr. David Neller is the Facility Director at Prospera, the Australia-Indonesia Partnership for Economic Development. And Prospera has been working in Indonesia around these questions of a health a healthy and safe society, uh, but one that also faces economic challenges. So, um, Dr. Nello, could you please step up and uh, we look forward to hearing from you based on what we've just heard from our panellists. Thank you, Helen, and um, thanks for the opportunity to talk today. So I think the panellists have set out an incredibly important question uh, around the policy choices that the government faces during this pandemic clearly impacts the well-being of many millions, if not the survival of millions. And these questions continue today as we look forward to this holiday period, for example, and the government thinks about the appropriate policy settings to manage COVID and potentially the new variant. My, my argument or proposition is that the government in fact did very well um, through, through the Delta variant, COVID, the COVID-19 experience, not that there are not enormous gaps in the health infrastructure, which, which ha had they been addressed earlier would have made the situation more manageable, but given the constraints that the government faced, um, it learned from the process, it refined policy and made those choices between health and economy more manageable. Having said that, as some of the questions such as on the rural city issue that was mentioned just before, these are excruciatingly difficult questions that the government has to tackle. And um, in a country as complex as Indonesia, this is, this is no easy feat. Um, so for Indonesia, uh, I think as, as has been messaged already, the choice is really not one of lockdown or not. Um, a lockdown in the way it's been seen in many countries would mean starvation for many people. So that's not an option. And likewise, no response, if you like, leaving the economy continue is not an option either because of the, the health consequences, which will ultimately impact the economy anyway. I think John, John Doverston has mentioned many of the challenging aspects of the issue around informality and the like. Um, 
approximately 40% of the population are either under the poverty line of a few dollars a day or just above. So they're very vulnerable to any um, policy change that impacts economic activity. Um, there are ways out and a recent business survey we conducted showed that those companies that uh, were using digital platforms or exporting were doing much better. But of course, for medium and small business, about 80% of those companies reported they don't know how to access or undertake business digitally. So there's a big challenge for the 99 plus percent of more than 60 million companies in Indonesia to really survive through any significant closure. So I think in government's thinking on this question, um, they effectively had a model in their minds. It may not have been as sophisticated as Pierre and Bututi have presented, but the broad contours of that model, I think, were in their minds. Perhaps, if anything, one might add another dimension to the health and economics and add the social dimension as an important consideration in the thinking. So what I'd like to do now, though, is to share with you some experience that we had working with the government during uh, the Delta uh, variant period. So the president assigned the coordinating minister maritime and investment, Luhut Panjaitan, to be in charge of initially Java and Bali provinces in terms of managing the various restrictions imposed. So, and working along with Ministry of Health, we were asked to support that effort. So perhaps if you could show the first slide, please. So this is the first step, if you like, which was actually just capturing on a daily basis, the health status and activity levels um, of uh, over 500 districts and cities across the whole of Indonesia. So the purpose of this was to manage the so-called lockdown because an efficient lockdown would mean a shorter lockdown. So we, we, we used with very short time notice, we used Facebook mobility, NASA satellite data and Google traffic data along with World Health Organization health categories um, for you know, one to four. And in parallel with this, we used very high frequency chatbot surveys to assess the social implications of, of, the, uh, of the policy measures adopted. So this is a dashboard um, which we produced showing, you know, we have the detail overall for all of the districts and then by district. And then each day we would meet with government in the evening and assess what parts of Indonesia were not following the policy appropriately or directly. And that would then result in a response by the minister or whatever the following day to look into the developments in a particular location. In some cases, we had physical visits to locations to understand what was happening at the micro level. So the right side actually shows some of those indexes and how we were able through action to get improvements um, in, in, the, in the area of activity. Next, we then progressed to start to try and be looking forward to estimate case trends against health capacity and also to enable us to support the government to shape social protection. 
So I, I won't go through the model in any detail, but the red line, this is the Jakarta model, the red line shows hospital capacity, the, the dark line, the, the caseload, and our projections for developments um, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the virus. The right side is indicative of showing how the lags of changes in mobility affect case, case levels or infections with a lag. So all of this information started to be accommodated within government and presented at cabinet meetings and the like. The next phase, uh, to the next slide, please. The next phase um, was to look at a range of policy options to assess what are the trade-offs that might be available. For example, if the government was able to accelerate vaccination, what would that mean for enabling the restrictions to be raised or eased in terms of economic activity? So um, we have the mobility and positive, these are all the dependent variable is the positivity rate. We have mobility where we see the lagged impact of mobility on positivity. We have the, um, the mask wearing as our measure of social distancing. This is based on Ministry of Health data using um, camera uh, source data. And we see that only above 80% that do you start to see an impact of this uh, masking uh, on, the, on, the rate, on the positivity rate? And so to, to give a feel for this, um, the, the masking increased by five percentage points between January and around the middle of 2021, so that uh, you know, it's not easy to move this variable up or down. And then finally on the right side, um, at the time when this was developed, vaccination rates were very low. And so we did find that uh, vaccination, first vaccination rates started to have a positive effect once you got into double digit rates of vaccination. There was very little in the way of data on second vaccination at that stage. So um, we just may have to make an assumption on that score. So if we have these four policy variables, how do we then make choices across that? And in the next slide, um, we show a range of scenarios that indicate um, where we are. So I won't go through all of this, it's too detailed, but the left column uh, with all the red was the sort of the no policy change case. And we see the positivity rate was running at about 25% and it would take 12 weeks to get it just under 20%, under no, no further policy change. We then explore with a range of scenarios what would happen if we relax mobility restrictions or we change mask wearing, we accelerate vaccination and so forth. And we see that with various policy combinations, you can reduce the positivity rate uh, much more quickly. And this was helpful for the government as they looked to plan the timeline around restrictions. I think one point that was mentioned earlier in terms of the impact on business was one of the challenges here was we would be updating the data as I say on a daily basis and looking regularly, but that led to government making relatively frequent changes in policy, which some business found um, 
made it difficult for some business to plan perhaps. So this gives a, to the framing, if you like, of what the government was thinking and doing. And this model was extended across the whole of Indonesia. But of course, as you move east, the quality of the data uh, diminishes. And so it is more difficult, but nonetheless, the dashboard and these models can be used across the board. So next slide, please, my last slide. Um, so I think, uh, you know, it certainly helped the government make uh, targeting of restrictions more effective. We were able, for example, the government used, um, they, the, uh, the government used, um, in some cases, restrictions such as allowing factories to continue to operate, um, but at 50% of, of workforce such that social distancing could be maintained. The satellite data we were using allowed us to look at 500 square meters, so we could focus on what was happening in industrial estates. We could focus on uh, different areas of that nature. So I think policy was strengthened um, we, across a range of areas. And what we saw in, in our latest um, survey on business, which we conduct with Bapanas, is that while revenue loss around that time was in the order of 20% of business, um, the adjustment of business was quite different to the earlier waves. There was far fewer layoffs, job layoffs, um, and uh, business navigated more effectively with this more nuanced policy. We saw that consumer confidence also, while falling, was not, did not fall as severely under this framework. Um, and households have, have rebounded more quickly as social protection mechanisms um, uh, improved. So um, thanks, I, I can change, take the slide off. Um, so I, I think there's a few key messages um, that one can draw from this. First, of course, the context to start with, you know, 270 million people, more than 5,000 inhabited islands, tremendous diversity, making policy making extremely complex and challenging. But it, we did find, I think, from this experience that policy choices that are informed by strong evidence can really make a substantive difference. First, they clearly provide focus on decision-making. The government has cl clarity around what it has to decide, the implications and consequences of those decisions. Secondly, to pick up a point that Helen raised earlier, I think it does align policymakers. Some may have been interested in pursuing other interests, um, but they cannot dispute the hard evidence. Um, I can tell you funny stories about responses to this use of satellite data, people turning off street lights and all sorts of things in some locations. But they, at the end of the day, the evidence is the evidence. And this really does help align policy um, more effectively. And third point, I think, is that it creates a really important learning environment for policymakers and analysts alike because it does show how we can do better in the future. And I think that is certainly a lesson from Indonesia over the last um, couple of years, is that like every country, we, you know, there was a shock at the beginning, 
um, once when the pandemic at the time of the outbreak. And then over time, policymaking has become much more sophisticated and evidence-based. And as I said, we're now looking at what does it look like for Christmas New Year period during this holidays? What sort of policy choices might make sense um, in order to contain the virus from uh, leading into a further wave? So Helen, I think I'll leave it there. Um, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you very much, David. That was great to get that perspective on what had been done by policymakers and the data that had been used and a bit of a look ahead as well. So thank you very much to David Neller, the Facility Director at Prospera for his role as a discussant today at the PEAR Summit. And now to close the annual summit, I would like to invite Penny Williams, the Ambassador to the Republic of Indonesia for Australia, and she's going to make our closing remarks. Hello, everyone. It's a great pleasure to be invited to close this year's annual summit of the Partnership for Australia-Indonesia Research. Over the past three days of the summit, we've heard from many talented researchers, from engineers to social scientists to public health experts, alongside leaders in industry, public policy and the wider community. These presentations have highlighted not only the scale of challenges that COVID-19 has presented across Australia and Indonesia, but importantly, how central collaboration between our countries has been to the development of new and innovative approaches to these challenges. Since the beginning of the pandemic, we've been working closely with our counterparts in the Indonesian government to deliver a targeted and timely response. Australia extended a $1.5 billion loan to support Indonesia's COVID-19 response and economic resilience. And we've pivoted our development programs to respond quickly, working closely with long-standing partners and in close collaboration with our colleagues in the Indonesian government to find solutions together. Australia has also delivered more than 4.5 million AstraZeneca doses to Indonesia. Australia has committed to provide over 20 million doses to Indonesia, 10 million doses from Australia's supply, and over 10 million more doses through our support for vaccine procurement. We have also delivered a range of other emergency support, working in close partnership with the Indonesian government, including oxygen concentrators, test kits, and PPE. Our assistance also includes a package of support designed to help address the impact of the pandemic on communities. This means supporting basic needs and food security, creating safe spaces for quarantine and isolation, providing psychological counselling to help with the pressures of the COVID era, and developing better communication products to counteract disinformation. This kind of targeted local assistance can only be delivered through close partnerships with trusted organisations working at the community level. That's why we are working with Indonesian, Australian and international NGOs, UN agencies, community organisations and provincial governments to make sure this help gets where it is most needed as quickly as possible. As things begin to open up here in Indonesia, I've been able to get out to meet more people and communities across Indonesia to see the difference this assistance has made. While we all know the pandemic isn't over yet, 
we're working hard now to build the strongest foundation possible to support a recovery that delivers for both of our countries. Our landmark trade agreement, the Indonesia-Australia Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or IASEPA, will be central to this recovery. This agreement is a critical framework for our mutual economic recovery, bringing the promise of a new generation of bilateral trade and investment opportunities. The Blueprint for Trade and Investment with Indonesia, launched by Minister T in Jakarta earlier this year, provides a roadmap for how businesses in Australia and Indonesia can grow their commercial links and develop new opportunities. IASEPA also includes a program of targeted support worth $40 million over five years to develop and grow partnerships between Indonesian and Australian businesses to generate inclusive growth. The program, Catalyst, seeks to maximise the benefits of IASEPA for both countries and to explore the complementary needs of our countries. This powerhouse model of trade, where Australian inputs are transformed into world-class Indonesian exports, has long been the holy grail of trade relations between our countries. But the potential scope of IASEPA is far broader. Be it in agriculture, advanced manufacturing, or training and skills, Catalyst and the Blueprint will help businesses in both countries explore deeper partnerships to boost our bilateral trade and investment. And as borders reopen, there is greater potential for greater skills exchange between our countries. For example, as Australian tech talent helps build the next Indonesian unicorn, or as young professionals from Indonesia find their start in Australian firms. It's true that the pivot to digital delivery in Indonesia and globally has been remarkable in education, in conferences such as this one, and in commerce and in government. But we all know there is no substitute for direct human interaction. Tourism and education in normal times are at the very forefront of our bilateral engagement. Immediately prior to the pandemic, levels of direct people-to-people -people engagement between our countries were at all-time highs. The new Colombo plan, which I know many of you will be familiar with, is a great example. Indonesia was the preferred country of choice for students leaving Australia on new Colombo plan scholarships. And in the first five years of the new Colombo plan, 10,000 Australian students spent time in Indonesia undertaking placements here at various stages of their university careers. We've kept momentum in programs like the NCP as best as we can virtually. And there's absolutely every indication that this sort of interest will persist when borders are able to reopen. Indonesian students too continue to see Australia as a priority destination for study and investment. Before the pandemic, we had around 20,000 Indonesian students enrolled in Australian universities. And again, we have every reason to believe this level of demand will continue as borders reopen. Tourism too was a bright spot, reflecting Australia's love affair with Bali and a growing number of Australia's venturing farther for holidays and for business. Ladies and gentlemen, while there may still be challenges ahead, there's a great deal of cause for optimism in the potential for our countries to recover strongly together. So as I close the PEAR Annual Summit for 2021, I want to acknowledge once again, and thank all those involved in making this event such a tremendous success. 
Virtual events aren't easy, but by coming together by any means possible, we are maintaining the critical momentum in our collaboration and continuing to deepen our understanding of the challenges and of the opportunities our countries share. So thank you to the researchers and speakers who participated in the summit for sharing your knowledge and insights. I also want to thank the Indonesian ministers who've spoken at the summit, Coordinating Minister for Economic Affairs, Bapak Erlangga Hartato, Minister for Health, Bapak Budi Gunadi Sadikin, and Deputy Minister at the Coordinating Ministry for Maritime and Investment Affairs, Bapak Odo R.M. Manahutu. Thank you also to the staff at the Australia Indonesia Centre for their tireless work behind the scenes, making this event possible. I hope to see you all again next year, perhaps even in person. Terima kasih. Thank you, Penny Williams, the Australian ambassador to the Republic of Indonesia. And yes, wouldn't it be lovely if we uh, can all catch up again next year, especially for the Pear Summit. And as she mentioned, that is the end of the annual summit for 2021. Thank you so much for joining us today. And on other days, if you have, where we've looked at topics around disability, around, uh, gosh, trying to remember now, it's been such a rich, field of information, data, healthcare, so many things that our researchers have touched on throughout the year and brought some ideas forward. So we hope you've learned something from those sessions. As always, the webinars are available on demand and we'll have today's up as soon as we can. It should certainly be available over the next day or two. You can find the recordings of today and much more on the PEAR website. That's where there will also be information about the research that we've discussed. Uh, the link to the PEAR website will be posted in the chat. There's a short survey at the close of this webinar and we hope you can complete that. It would be much appreciated and will help us in creating better webinars in the future. I'd also like to give a big thank you to In Asli, the Indonesian Sign Language Interpreters, to Patwadodo and Busonya, and also our audio translators, Langua, for their excellent efforts today and always in ensuring that as many people as possible can join in on these conversations. I'm Helen Brown from the Asia Australia Indonesia Centre, and it's been a pleasure to be your moderator and host today. I hope you have a great rest of the week and thank you and goodbye.